Friends, welcome back. Thanks for being with us as we start a new week, uh, continuing through Exodus in the 31st chapter today, having kind of mostly finished a a long section about uh, various things that have to do with the religious life of Israel. Um, We have just a little bit of a tail end on that today, and then we really move into more of a narrative, probably starting tomorrow, and it will be a narrative that I think uh, will be familiar to most of you. But let's jump in at 31 here. Uh, as as we have covered the last several chapters, uh, there have been, as you know, instructions given about how things were going to be made, about what was going to be made, about how things would look and what they would be made of. And now we get instruction about who is going to oversee that. So I'll just read this really quickly. I don't know that there's a whole lot in it to talk about, Michael, but we can we can see what jumps out. The Lord spoke to Moses. I have called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with divine spirit and ability, intelligence, and knowledge in every kind of craft to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, bronze, cutting stones, for setting, carving wood, every kind of craft. Moreover, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Asimach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given him skill to all the skillful, so that he may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent the table, its utensils, the lampstand, the utensils, the altar, and the altar, the burnt offering, the utensils, the basin, stand. You get the idea here. So um, verse 11, and the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, they shall do just as I have commanded you. So uh, not a whole lot, I think, maybe devotional here, but uh, Moses is, again, we, we saw some of this earlier in the book of Exodus, uh, kind of Moses delegating some of the responsibilities. Here he does that at um, at God's instruction. These two men that we've, I think, not heard of and I suspect don't hear much of again. But these will be the craftsmen in charge, the sort of supervisors, making sure all of these commandments get followed, making sure all of these things get made properly. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know much to say about it other than it really kind of closes this section, at least for now. Uh, just a couple really quick things to note, uh, because I think you're right, Clint, there's there's not a whole lot to add here. Just want to let you know that uh, Bezalel, uh, the name means um, in the shadow of God's protection, which is interesting, and then that... Uh, Ohilab is his assistant, um, which means his name means tent of the father, or the divine father is my tent. So it's interesting that even these names on some level, Clint, they reflect um, being in the the shadow of God's will, being in the tabernacle, the place of God's protections, or the tent of meeting with God. So even uh, it speaks to the divine calling, the purpose uh, with which God made these men, the skill that they brought to the task that was set in front of them, whether that was directly with their hands making all these things or whether it was supervising the production of these things. What we see in this is that God not only has a plan, but God has equipped the people to do what is necessary for that plan to go forward. And Clint, you, you made the point, so I'm going to try not to go too far afield. If we were going to look for a point in this for me, you know, of course, there's the historical uh, of interest in this, the idea that, you know, there were the master craftsmen available to do this work. But I, I, w- I think there's also an interesting 
aspect of the story in that we encounter that when God gives the people a command, God has already equipped the people for that command. And that's a theme that comes throughout scripture. So maybe that would be something that you could, we're, we're far away from the original intent and purpose uh, at that point. But there may be some encouragement to say, if God um, has given a plan for you, which we believe that God has, then God has also equipped you to live out that plan, whatever that will look like. Yeah, there is a little clue here, Michael, that this is about more than just the stuff. You know, it says that um, I, I have filled uh, Bezalel with divine spirit, and that's the first thing listed. And then ability, intelligence, knowledge, craft, all that stuff. But the idea that the, they're not just making things, they're making sacred things, and that then it is incumbent upon the craftsman to do so with the right spirit. To, to This isn't simply about them being able to do it. It's about them being faithful in being obedient and discharging these duties that God has given them. So, um, yeah, not, I, I don't know. There, this would be a tough passage to preach probably, Yeah, but there, there's a little bit in it at least. Then we get to the, the end of the chapter, really more of the middle, but the, the back half of the chapter. And this is an interesting restatement. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, you yourself speak to the Israelites. You shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, given in order that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it shall be cut off from among the people. Six days shall work be done. The seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on that day shall be put to death. Therefore, the Israelites shall keep the Sabbath, observing it throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So a very strong restatement of this idea of Sabbath law, this idea of the seasons and cycles of life, the idea of holy rest, the idea of the people's practices reflecting the 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 story of God's own work and as as of yet in the story the presumption is that the people will soon be in the promised land now now we may know that that's not how it's going to work out but at this point in the story that's the assumption and it is very interesting that of all the laws that are sort of spoken already, this is the one that is restated and restated in very strong language. I mean, two different times in this passage, people being put to death for being disobedient or being cut off from the people for being disobedient. And, you know, this is a, a very specific, very particular law to highlight in this way as the people begin to imagine their responsibility for living in the new land as the people of God. So for a moment, just remember where we've been the last week, really, talking about all of the laws, the do's, the don'ts, and then most recently, the stuff of worship, the place, the fixtures, the elements, even in some ways the priesthood itself, all of this is work language. All of this is do language. This is stuff that needs made or it's practices that need attended to 
or it is commandments that need lived out or things that need to be actively refrained from doing. You know, all of this is the human vocation, the living life, the midst of the middle. We even talked about how there's a sense in which this is the nitty gritty of living a, a human life. It's a day-to-day kind of stuff that it means to be human. But Clint, what's interesting here is at the tail end of this, all of this work that's laid out, all this stuff that's good, that God says, uh, you know, prescribes and says to the people, this is what you should do to worship me. It's at the end of this that we discover that now God wants to reiterate the commandment we've already been given, the importance of stepping back, of rest, of ceasing. And that's not in the modern sense of vacation. That's not, I'm going to go someplace mm-hmm. so I do no work. No, actually, Sabbath is a kind of spiritual practice in which one is reminded that you were never the one providing life, that God has been giving you life this whole time. And on that seventh day, when you mirror, to use your language, Clint, when when you practice God's pattern of six days work, seventh day of Sabbath, you are practicing that reminder that God is God and you are not, that God creates and you do not, that God is the ultimate storehouse of all wisdom and treasure. You are merely a steward of that. And so there's a grounding that happens at the end of the story that I think is unbelievably, uh, of course, interesting, but I would even say um, spiritually wise and discerning. There's something very, very wise about returning our perspective to say it wasn't me who accumulated, it wasn't me who earned, it wasn't me who lives at the center of the story. All of this stuff that we've done in the last six days, the last chapters of this book, all of that is in service to the God who is the God of Israel and our God, the one who we serve. I think that I think in some ways, at least for me, Michael, the most helpful word to think about Sabbath is refrain. Because it's the idea that the people will intentionally step back from the normal concerns of life. They will withdraw themselves from work. It's not that things don't need done. It's not a promise that things are going to be easy. It's a deliberate discipline to say that on a weekly basis, there will be a day where they refrain from work. They refrain from the common, ordinary worries of life. Excuse me. Bless you. And they focus on their faith. They intentionally focus on um, worship, on rest. And I think you're wise to point out, you know, yes, the word here is rest, but it's it's not rest in the sense of recover and nap and and sort of you know recharge. That's that's in there to some extent. But it's more deliberate than that. It, yeah. it is more intentional than that. And you may remember this bookends the manna story where for six days they collected, but on the sixth day they collected enough. And it, it is that act of faith that says, when I refrain, God will be enough. God will provide. My life is not ultimately about my own work and my own accomplishment and my own drive. My life is ultimately about the work of God, and God can be trusted to do that work in and through me. And it's a, I think we really struggle with Sabbath. We're not in a society that mm-hmm. that does much with it or values it much, and so it's easy to misunderstand. You know, Christians don't really 
practice Sabbath in, in not certainly not in the strict sense of the Old Testament. We don't even do it on the same day. But there is something for us here. There's something to learn from. There's something to to see. And I, th- I think there's something commendable in, in the the cycle of it understood properly. I, I think that this is actually a very challenging, Clint. This is a, a challenging word, not just for us today, but for the people of Israel. I want to point out verse 16 and 17 here. The idea is explicit that the Israelites will observe the Sabbath throughout their generations, and it is called a perpetual covenant. And if you were with us in the Genesis study, you'll remember that one of the uh, ways that God uh, made visual that covenant with Noah was the rainbow. This has happened numerous times in the New Old Testament text up to this point where God has made a covenant, God has made a promise with the people. The people have always been unfaithful to that, or they've always had doubt, or they've always struggled in that last and final moment. But God has always been faithful. God's always been working through these broken and disjointed relationships. God is able providentially to make it happen, right? But here, once again, this language is that the Sabbath-keeping, that this will be a sign of the covenant, it will be the thing that binds the people to this relationship with they, that they have with God. And certainly, to your point, Clint, Christians don't have the same kind of force behind Sabbath that we see lived out here. And one might you know, say that maybe if you read this section and you read this through Hebrews and you could think about you know, the idea of Jesus' resurrection representing Sabbath and there being theological connection. There's some really interesting conversation I think that we could have if we had more time. But I do think practically, practically we might learn something deeply wise, maybe even soul transforming, if we can internalize this idea that God is enough, that, that God is so much enough that we can have leftover in our life, and that leftover wasn't something that we created. If that's the minimum of what we can get from a text like this as a Christian, I think that it would push us, it would stretch us, and it would be stretching us in a good direction. And there's a major clue, Michael, right on the front end. This is a sign given between me and you throughout all generations. And then God says, given in order that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And so uh, that... If you read that somewhat literally, and I know that, that you know, there's risk in that, um, because it's, it's very hard to pin down God to one thing. But part of what God is saying here is that the practice of Sabbath keeps the people mindful that they do not sanctify themselves, that they're not sanctified by their work, that they're not sanctified by their success, that they're not sanctified by their wealth. That the intentional stepping back every seven days to step back and to put the work down and leave it down, to refrain from the, the normal practices of everyday life in an intentional way, and to step back and, and sort of put everything of all of the stuff at a distance is a reminder of who sanctifies us. And I, I think, you know, that's one of the clearest statements that I think we've seen of the intention behind the law. Mm-hmm. Yes, you should keep the Sabbath because God rested on the seventh day, but the experience of keeping it is a reminder of who sanctifies you. And I, I don't think we've seen that language previous, and it's 
I, I think it's very compelling and I think very helpful. There's a beautiful thing that the Old Testament does just innately. It, it doesn't need to think about it. All of these things are directly connected to the very beginning. I don't know if you noticed that, this idea here at the end. Uh, it's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. The Lord made heaven and earth. Speaking of creation, the Lord made. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. So the people's daily, weekly life, the cycle of I've got to do stuff so I can earn a wage for my family, right? I need to do stuff so that we have the food, so that we have the water, the things that we need. In the midst of that process, in the midst of that living, the people are actually theologically practicing with their hands and feet the very cycle that God shows in the making of all things. It's a beautiful kind of thing, uh, almost the image of a child imitating their parent, you know, watching their parent do something and then living their own life in such a way as to mimic it and then ultimately to make it a part of their own identity. That That is the kind of thing that's happening here. And I think that Christians may miss the force of that in our own spiritual lives, Clint, because of the ways that we've interpreted Sabbath and the way that we live that out in our own faith, we might miss that when we live in this pattern, it's a constant daily reminder, a weekly practice that reunites us to the center of the faith, to the very God who made everything from the very beginning. It connects our current slice of history, which is just this tiny, tiny thread of history, to the entire story of God's creation and all of time itself. And I think, you know, we might miss that when we just look at 17 verses of, of Sabbath. But I think it's all, it's underneath the surface there, and I think we might have something to learn from it. It would be interesting. It's not something we have time for, maybe doesn't fit necessarily our purpose, but it would be interesting to put Sabbath law um, in conversation with the rest of the law of the Old Testament, specifically the communal law. Because I, I think you could make a case, Michael, that Sabbath is not simply to be practiced individually. Sabbath mm -hmm. is the reflection of a community that cares, of of farmers who leave gleaning for the poor and the hungry in their right. fields. That that Sabbath isn't just nobody work and the people who can't afford it, too bad for them, right? And there there is a communal a, a care for one another woven into this that that I think undergirds. Now we don't see that here, but I think if you put the Sabbath laws in context with the other laws, it really paints a picture of not just a word to the individual, but a word to the people. You notice all the language here is plural. The the you is plural and the you people, you all, the people of Israel. There's there's not a lot of individual language here, and I think most often the laws are spoken like that. And then just a last word here as we finish up, verse 18, and I, I love this verse. When God finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So the idea here is that there were engraved tablets with these various laws we've been hearing with all these instructions. And that they come literally from the hand of God, from the finger of God. Um, there's not an explicit tie, but you might remember a story in the book of John where Jesus is dealing with a prostitute and he, and there are people asking him questions. And it's a very strange detail in the story. It says he, he gets down and he writes 
in the dirt. And, you know, there are those who have connected this story and that story with the idea that they're trying to tell Jesus about the law and Jesus is essentially writing with the finger who wrote on Mount Sinai, you know, that idea that don't tell me about the law. I, I wrote it. I know it. And I just think it's a very interesting, uh, kind of a personification text here written with the finger of God. That's a beautiful summary, Clint. I think that's a great place to leave it. Remembering that this language of law, this language of sanctuary, of worship has always been personal. It's always been relational. And whenever we miss that facet of the story, we tend to make it into a kind of cold legalistic structure. And and when we do that, we do a disservice to God's intention and also God's extreme decision to enter into human life in Jesus Christ that he might unite us with him uh, in spite of our sin. So thanks for being with us, everyone. Yeah, see you tomorrow. Thank you.